the point of qualified immunity is that there's an objective standard of what the clearly established law is that should should be clear to any reasonable officer. And to have the adjudication of it depend apparently so heavily on some of these other factors suggests that it's not that stable and it's not that objectively verifiable. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, March 26th, 2021. Alexander Rayner is the Max Freund Professor of Litigation and Advocacy at the Benjamin N. Cardoza School of Law, where he teaches and conducts research in civil procedure, constitutional law, and federal courts. He is the author of a recent article, Qualified Immunity on Appeal, an empirical assessment, which provides the most comprehensive study so far of the actual way that courts of appeals have handled qualified immunity cases. He wrote about it in an article on Lawfare entitled Unpacking a Decade of Appellate Decisions on Qualified Immunity, And he joined me recently on Lawfare Live to discuss qualified immunity before a live audience. We talked about a lot of things. What is the doctrine and where does it come from? How do courts handle qualified immunity cases in practice? And is it as much of a shield as it seems to be for cops? Is there prospect to reform qualified immunity doctrine at the state level or the federal level? And what does the future look like for the doctrine? It's the Lawfare Podcast, March 26th. Alex Raynert on qualified immunity. So let's start with just a basic walkthrough of what qualified immunity is and why everyone's talking about it all of a sudden. So I'll start with what it is. It's a defense for defendants in civil rights damages actions in which the defendant is accused of violating some federal law, usually federal constitutional law. And what qualified immunity does is it says that if the defendant acted reasonably in light of clearly established law, then the defendant can't be held liable indeed then the suit should be dismissed as early as possible. So by definition, it does its work where the defendant has actually violated the Constitution, but where the law was not clearly established or where a reasonable defendant would know that he or she was violating the Constitution. So that's it in a nutshell. And as to your question as to why people are talking so much about it, I mean, people have been talking about qualified immunity for a while in the civil rights space. I think a lot of the recent discussion around qualified immunity is related to the well-publicized and tragic instances of police misconduct that I think um, have gained greater salience in part, frankly, because of the proliferation of cell phones and other ways that people are able to publicize some of the incidents that take place that have uh, sadly probably taken place for years. So one of the interesting things about qualified immunity is where it comes from, which is that it is an entirely judge-made doctrine that Congress could presumably change tomorrow if it wanted to, right? That's right. I mean, it comes from the Supreme Court was interpreting a federal statute, 42 U.S.C. Section 1983. That's the statute when someone brings an action for violations of of their civil rights. It's almost always brought under Section 1983. As long as it's brought against a state or a local official, something different we could talk about if it's brought against a federal official. But in any event, when the court was interpreting Section 1983, early on, it held that even though the statute says nothing about qualified immunity, that's that some version of a common law immunity was incorporated into the statute. And as you say, because it's a question of statutory interpretation, not a question of the Constitution, Congress could abolish it tomorrow. And qualified immunity has always had detractors both on the left and the right, although I think the right conservative dissent from the doctrine is a sort of more recent thing. What are the basic criticisms of it? Who are qualified immunities discontents other than the people who want to sue cops for 
you know, illegal uh, searches and seizures sure. or shootings. Yeah. So I think we could categorize the objections in, in different boxes. So there's the objection just that it reduces compensation when someone's rights are violated. That is, there are some people whose rights were violated who won't be compensated. And the only reason will be because of the effect of qualified immunity. And not just does it reduce compensation, it also therefore reduces deterrence. It makes it unlikely that officials will be deterred from behaving unconstitutionally. There's also a rule of law argument, I think, that is that it undermines respect for the rule of law. One way to think about it is if the whole point of the immunity doctrine is that somehow the, the public benefits because officers won't be worried about being sued when they act, if that's the benefit, the cost is borne entirely by the individuals who are harmed in those circumstances. And it just strikes, I think, a, a lot of people that, well, if it's beneficial to the public, then the cost can be borne by the public. They just they shouldn't just be borne by one individual who happens to have suffered injuries. And then there's a there's a I think a a critique based on what it does to the role of courts. So this is a little bit more in the weeds, but I think it's worth talking about, which is because the focus in qualified immunity is often on whether law is clearly established, not on whether a constitutional right was violated at all, but whether the law was clearly established, it makes it harder for courts to develop new constitutional law. It makes it harder for new constitutional rights to be developed. And so that's a structural critique. Yeah. So let, let's let's focus on that for a minute, because I think it's clearly right. But why it's clearly right is probably non-obvious. So I'm a cop and I violate somebody's civil rights. And in a fashion that you as a judge acknowledge is relatively obvious that I've violated somebody's civil rights. But my argument in response to that person's lawsuit is, you know, you may, it may be intuitively obvious to you, but it's not actually clearly established law. There's no, there's no controlling legal opinion that says Ben Wittes isn't allowed to beat this particular person about the face and neck with a Coke can, you know, whatever the specific facts of the, of, of the allegations are. And you as a judge may have to look at that and say, gosh, it's pretty obvious that you're not allowed to beat somebody about the face and neck with a Coke can, but there is no established law on point. And therefore, though I find that this is unconstitutional behavior, you're immune for this time yeah. for doing it. Is that a fair summary of the way it works? That's a fair summary of the way it used to work. So in 2001, the Supreme Court announced a decision called Saucer versus Katz. And in that decision, it said courts should do exactly what you just suggested a judge would do, Ben. First decide, was there a constitutional violation alleged? And then proceed to the question of, well, was it clearly established? When courts do that, we do get new constitutional law. That is, we do get some iteration of constitutional rights. But then in 2009, Supreme Court in Pearson versus Callahan said, lower courts don't need to follow that mandatory order anymore. They can jump right to whether law is clearly established. And if they decide that it wasn't clearly established, they never need to decide the predicate question of whether there was a constitutional violation. So then you get the decision that says, even assuming arguendo that it's unconstitutional to beat somebody about the face and neck with a Coke can, it's still not clearly established. And therefore, you don't you don't even get the development of the substantive law. Right. We never learn if that particular conduct would be considered unconstitutional. Now, that's a that that's a harm institutionally to the development of law. I think we should also say, I think it's a harm to law enforcement that is, I think law enforcement benefits from knowing when they cross the constitutional line. And so, you know, we all, we started down this road because we were talking about what brings the right and the left together on some of this. I think there's some recognition that qualified immunity has harms beyond just to the people whose rights are violated. So one of the interesting points that you make in your piece is that there is remarkably little empirical study of 
actual qualified immunity decisions, which is, of course, the point of the piece is to redress that uh, and the, the larger study of which it's part. So this is the the bedrock defense that every 1983 suit has to break through. Why has it not had more empirical study and what are the nature of the studies that have been done? Yeah, so why it hasn't, I mean, that's a difficult question to answer, except I'll start with, I mean, I do a fair amount of empirical legal work. And one thing I've learned is sometimes you study what you can study. (laughs) And for a long time, it was pretty hard to study trial courts in particular, uh, a little bit easier to study intermediate appellate courts, and much easier to study Supreme Court cases, not just because of the volume of cases. That's obviously one reason, but just because of the technology. It, it was very difficult to study district court decisions because up until recently, it was hard to get access to all the district court decisions. So that's just a technological point. And the, the other point is, I think for a long time, it was just assumed that qualified immunity played a large role in civil rights actions. Now, I think part of the reason it was assumed was because the Supreme Court for the last 20 to 30 years, when it takes a qualified immunity case, it's almost always to grant qualified immunity. So it creates a perception that it's very powerful. And then in 2010, I did a study focused on Bivens litigation, which is litigation against federal officials. And in that study, I found something interesting, which is that qualified immunity in the trial courts seemed to not be playing much of a role. And then Joanna Schwartz did a wonderful study of Section 1983 suits more recently, and she came to the same conclusion in law enforcement cases. So part of my goal here was to say, well, we know what's happening in the Supreme Court. We're getting a better sense of what's happening in the trial court. But what about in-between? And so there had been some prior studies of the in-between most of those studies were focused on the question you and I were just talking about, the Pearson versus Callahan question. Almost all of the prior studies of empirical studies of courts of appeals were focused on are courts changing the order in which they decide these questions? And not as focused as I was in this piece on just the bottom line question, how is qualified immunity resolved? What are the variables that relate to it, to how it's resolved? So so there's been work in the past. It's just not work focused on this particular question. So all of that is a great segue. How are qualified immunity cases being resolved? And what are the variables that seem to determine that? So, so some of this surely won't be surprising to either people familiar with the law or even just lay people, which is the first part of it is we, we called about 4,000, more than 4,000 qualified immunity decisions over the course of about 10 years in the courts of appeals. We looked at everyone. And so this was different from prior studies. Prior studies had done random samples or it only looked at decisions that cited to particular cases or only looked at published decisions. We looked at all of them. And what, it, what we found was, number one, overall, defendants do pretty well on qualified immunity in the courts of appeals. They prevail about 60% of the time. But the more interesting thing to me was the difference in how courts of appeals treated appeals from grants of qualified immunity versus appeals from denials of qualified immunity. And what the data show is that the courts of appeals were much more likely to reverse the denials than they were to reverse the grants, about twice as likely to reverse denials of qualified immunity as compared to grants. Pause over that for a second. So in other words, if a trial court finds that the the cop is not or the government official is not immune and has to face the civil liability action that finding against the official is twice as likely to be reversed as the finding upholding the, the defense the, yeah. the 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 qualified immunity yeah. defense so so to those that that's at least a, a a prima facie bit of evidence of some degree of structural bias in favor of the law enforcement officer, right? That's correct. And and so then what I wanted to look into, well, can we tease out what might relate to this asymmetrical treatment of uh, what I call an asymmetrical review? It's not my term. Jonathan Nash came up with it. Asymmetrical review of qualified immunity decisions. Like, why does it seem that courts of appeals are more skeptical of decisions denying the defense than of decisions 
affirming the defense or granting the defense. And so I found a few things that seem to correlate with that. Probably the two that are most important are what court the appeal took place in, which, which circuit court. It's, I think most practitioners would say the circuit courts have different reputations, deservedly so, for being friendlier or not to civil rights plaintiffs. And so there was wide variation in the extent to which particular courts of appeals within the United States engaged in this asymmetrical review. For some of them, it was extreme. And for some of them, it was far less extreme. All right. So I'm going to stop you again there. (laughs) So the practitioners of the judicial confirmation wars of both left and right would nod their heads at this and say, of course, you want to be a civil rights plaintiff in the Ninth Circuit and in the Second Circuit, and you really don't want to be one in the Eleventh Circuit or the Fifth Circuit. And so the question is, how much does the data conform to the to the stereotype here, and how how much is the variation not the same variation that you would predict based on sort of crude DNR ideology yeah. stuff? So it, it conforms somewhat to the stereotype. So the the asymmetrical treatment was most extreme in the fifth and the eighth circuits, which are known as being yeah. are thought to be relatively defendant friendly, but it was also significant in the first and the third circuits, which are a little bit less thought of that way. And as to the circuits in which there wasn't as strong evidence of asymmetry, it was the DC, the fourth and the ninth. Now, historically, the fourth used to be thought of as right. a relatively conservative but circuit, it's but moved it's, a lot. it's moved a lot. Yeah. So so there's there's some conformity. But then, of course, what I wanted to do was break it down even further and look at, okay, what about the composition of the panels themselves? And using a very rough proxy for ideology, right? What was the political party of the president who appointed the appellate judges? This is where the data, I think, really strongly support an argument that judicial ideology or presumed judicial ideology is playing a role. When you look at the reversal rate, it's just this linear relationship. If it's a grant of qualified immunity by the district court, the reversal rate goes up as you go from three Republican-appointed appellate judges to three Democrat-appointed appellate judges. If it's a district court denial, the reversal rate goes up as you go from three Democrat-appointed appellate judges to three Republican. Uh, and is that is judges. that true irrespective of what circuit you're in, or is are are the circuits with particular reputations for? you know, smoothing those differences out. I'm thinking of the First Circuit, you know, where everybody supposedly loves each other. You know, do Democrats and Republicans behave more like each other in the in the First Circuit than they do in the Fifth and Eighth? Well, so actually in the Fifth, I think Democrats and Republicans appear more like each other. Uh, Democrat and Republican appointed uh, appellate judges appear more like each other. And, and I, this is an interesting finding to me. So one of the critiques, and I think it's a legitimate critique of the studies that try to suss out the effect of judicial ideology, one of the things they say is there's a lot more that's important than this. And one of the things that's important is the law. I mean, the law matters, right? The law matters to judges. And so I think in the Fifth Circuit, I I think even Democrat-appointed judges, even if they were inclined to find for the plaintiff, would be confronted by relatively hostile Fifth Circuit law that would make it hard for them to, in in good conscience, do so. So, so for some of the circuits, you can see strong ideological effects, and for some, you can't. Now, uh, this was a situation where it was harder for me to do significance testing, and for those of you who care, right, I was trying to do significance testing as much as I could, just because the number when you go into a circuit and then you try and divide by three Republican appointed panels versus three Democrat versus everything in between, it gets a little harder to get enough numbers to really do some t- statistical testing. So I look for trends, but I, I, I wasn't comfortable in drawing too many conclusions when you dug down into the circuits. The, the last thing I did, which I don't think anyone's done before who's tried to study this, is I then I tried to look at whether or not the political party of the president who appointed the district court judge played any role. And to me, this 
was also extremely interesting. I'll throw out a couple of statistics, right? When a, when a three Republican appointed court of appeals is reviewing a grant of qualified immunity by a district court judge who is appointed by a Democratic president, right? Then the, the reversal rate is super low, eight and a half percent, much lower than the average reversal rate. By contrast, when a three Republican appointed court of appeals is reviewing a district court decision denying qualified immunity, also by a Democrat appointed district judge, the reversal rate is 62 and a half percent. So we shift same, you know, Democrat appointed judges, three Republican panels, reversal rate shifts from eight and a half percent for district court grants to 62 and a half percent for district court denials. And if you do the same thing with three D panels reviewing Republican appointed district court judges, you see similar, although not as extreme as that. So that to me also was was quite interesting. So what is your broad conclusion from this? I mean, I could see I could see a number of distinct conclusions one could draw. One is, hey, you know, depending on your which side you're on, it really matters whether you're dealing with Republican judges or Democratic judges for this purpose. I could also see the conclusion that this doctrine is not all that is much less stable than it looks to be this susceptible to apparent ideological influence. It suggests that an apparently simple test that the court has asked the lower courts to apply is actually much more malleable than it reads when you read the Supreme Court opinions. What do you take away from all of this? So I take away some of that. So I I do think one of the things that I looked at was how qualified immunity was resolved over time, in part to get a sense of exactly what you were just saying. Has the Supreme Court been effective in in a way, I guess, in disciplining lower courts to be more open to the qualified immunity defense. And the course of the study period was a, really marked a transition in the, some of the language that the court used with respect to qualified immunity. And even as the court gets more and more open and welcoming of arguments for qualified immunity over the course of the study period, it doesn't seem like the conduct of the lower courts changes that much. That is, the reversal rate seems to stay the same over time. The relative success of defendants seems to stay the same over time. So that, that the first thing is it suggests to me that the if the court's trying to signal something to the lower courts, that signal may not be getting through. On the stability of the doctrine, I also take some uh, something away from that too. I mean, the, the point of qualified immunity is that there's an objective standard of what the clearly established law is that should should be clear to any reasonable officer. And to have the adjudication of it depend apparently so heavily on some of these other factors suggests that it's not that stable and it's not that objectively verifiable. Now, for me, as someone who is a critic of qualified immunity, now, that to me is a, another argument for why it's worth revisiting the doctrine. And and I suppose the last part of it is, I mean, this is just a reminder of how powerful the defense is. I mean, it, it's true, I think, as Joanna Schwartz has shown and as some to some degree I've shown, that it may be that in, in the district court, in many litigated cases, qualified immunity isn't playing a role partly because there's lots of other things that can make someone lose a lawsuit other than qualified immunity. But it does seem that when it gets up to the Court of Appeals, uh, it's a powerful defense. Uh, yeah. And so, so, so that to me is another takeaway. So I want to ask about what the rules should be. So I think the idea of some degree of qualified immunity makes a certain intuitive sense. A cop who is just doing his job, complying with the rules, somebody gets hurt, should not be individually liable for for some creative, based on some creative legal theory that he or she couldn't reasonably have been expected to know anything about. 
On the other hand, it does seem like the degree of protection current qualified immunity doctrine gives is extravagant and allows for, you know, people to be shot and killed and there to be nobody who is liable for it. And so I'm I I'm interested in your policy views of what the right, you know, on the spectrum from none, every every cop should walk around, you know, and have an insurance policy for individual liability to uh, presumably something less than what we have now. What What's the right answer for the degree of protection that the law uh, should offer law enforcement officers? Well, so I'll say a few things about that. I think, number one, we're in a world in which, although the language of Section 1983 liability is is described as a personal liability regime. It's not that's not the way it functions. That is, even even if officers are successfully sued for constitutional violations, they're they are almost always indemnified by their employing entity. So if that's true, and empirically, again, Joanna Schwartz has done great work showing it and the and Joanna, Jim Fander, and I published another a different study together um, showing that's true in the Bivens context. So if that's true, then actually I, I, I'm not so sure that I'm as concerned about exposing an otherwise unsuspecting defendant to the perils of litigation. And so I actually think it would be better to make it explicit. That is, I, I think entity liability makes a whole lot of sense. And so one of the things... I hate to keep referring to different work, but again, um, Joanna Schwartz, Jim Fander, and I have written a different article saying, here's a one way to approach it, which is along the lines of what Colorado did recently with state law, which is to say, yes, there's some limited potential for an officer to be liable, but only up to a pretty small percentage. And never if the officer can't afford to pay the judgment, then it should be covered in full by the employing entity. And to me, the virtue of that is, number one, we still achieve compensation. Number two, we hopefully still achieve deterrence. Number three, I think we start talking about the problems of misconduct through a lens of systemic problems rather than through the lens of the one bad apple. Are there bad apples? Sure, there are. But I think many of the incidents we see are, if we when we dig down, are a product of systemic choices. And to me, that's the better focus. So if it were a world in which officers truly were subject to personal liability, where their houses were on the line, then I understand your intuition. But that's not the world we live in. And so so that makes me less worried about doing away with the regime so long as we keep those protections in place. There's a middle ground, which is what we used to have before we moved to this clearly established law, which is a good faith immunity, where basically if the officer can show they were acting in good faith, and that's a subjective standard, then they can obtain immunity that way. Maybe that's a middle ground, but but I'm not sure. But that makes me super uncomfortable because I think a lot of a lot of police actually behave awfully in good faith. Yeah. And and I don't mean that in a snide way, but you know, you work in a bad neighborhood for a long time. You come to be suspicious of people and maybe your trigger finger gets itchy. You're not acting in bad faith. You're just heavily conditioned by an environment in which you don't feel safe. And you can end up doing some really terrible things that we would want you know, we wouldn't want cops doing. And and yet, if you grilled that person, they would give you an honest account of how they felt and why they behaved as they did. And I don't think you could find they weren't in good faith. Well, I can say that as a historical matter, the good faith defense was perceived as less protective than the qualified immunity defense that we now have today, in part because it's a good faith belief that they acted lawfully. So it's not just I was generally acting in good faith. It's a good faith belief that I was acting within the confines of the law. So at least the perception was that that was a less protective regime than the objective qualified immunity standard 
that we have today. All right, we're going to go to audience questions Great. from Finland. The floor is yours. Thanks, Ben, and uh, great to be here. And uh, thanks, Alex, also for being here. Yeah, great to see you. So uh, is there any way to determine what effect, if any, the experience of legal counsel for either a defendant or plaintiff has had in the resolution of uh, qualified immunity? Thanks. So, yeah, sure. It's a great question. There are some ways to do it. So so one of the one of the problems I had with some of the prior studies was none of them actually looked at whether or not the plaintiff in the cases was represented or not. So I coded for that. Now that's a that's a uh, again a blunt instrument to get at this question. But there were some interesting takeaways from that, which is in cases in which the plaintiffs were unrepresented, those plaintiffs were about as successful in defending their wins in the district court, that, in, that is, in defending district court denials on appeal. The pro se plaintiffs, that is, the unrepresented plaintiffs, were about as successful as the represented plaintiffs. Where the pro se plaintiffs, the unrepresented plaintiffs, were less successful was in finding a way to reverse grants of qualified immunity by the district court. So that, to me, is an interesting finding. It's just a, to me, it suggests avenues for further research more than anything. That's the best I can say from the data I have so far. The floor is yours. Thanks so much uh, for coming on. What is what is your opinion on the legacy of qualified immunity as a holdover from the early days of policing in the United States, namely sleigh patrols and night watches? It to me, it seems like it seems like there's there's a line there. Well. So the way the court got there was through the common law of 1871. And, and they found it in immunity in general for uh, local and state officials. Uh, it wasn't sourced specifically in the slave patrols. I mean, I do think there's some, I've written an article actually about the link between the Eighth Amendment and slavery and the, and the standards of the Eighth Amendment and slavery, in which I think there's a stronger connection. I, I do think though that qualified immunity emerged at a time when there was great unrest in our cities. And it was seen at that point as a way of protecting police. And in that sense, I think it can be seen as rooted in concerns about racial unrest and the court's response to that. So, I, I, but I'm not sure that I've seen any evidence about its connection to slave patrols. So it's an interesting, but but I think the, the sort of, for some of the reasons you just alluded to, the spirit of David's question is an interesting one. I wonder if there is any data in your study that suggests you you know how the race of the plaintiff or defendant affects the outcomes that you're describing yeah so that's another thing that i would like to dig into deeper it's not it's not accounted for in in these data sometimes it's hard to get that information obviously it's not always present in the uh, on the face of the the opinion yeah i mean i think it's a it's a really interesting question i think I think the the intuition behind David's question is, hey, is this a doctrine that's fundamentally about protecting white officers for violent acts involving principally minority members of the community uh, in violation of the Constitution? And I do think like the intuition that a disproportionate number of those cases have that valence to them is probably a valid one, no? Well, I mean, the empiricist in me says it's a hypothesis that I would want to test. I, I think the intuition, there's lots to the intuition. You know, I did look at race of judges and of, and I haven't reported that data in part because I'm still trying to think about how to report it. So I think there's something to the intuition, but I, I, I think you know, that the courts of appeals don't always know what the race of either party is. Sometimes it's obvious and sometimes it's not. It would be easier to do if you focused in on equal protection cases, but that would not be excessive force cases. That would be equal protection cases. And, and, and the data certainly are there to, to do. I just haven't done it yet. The floor is yours. Good evening. Uh, how would qualified immunity um, apply when state and federal laws 
conflict. I'm, I'm thinking of there was talk of, of federal legislation uh, banning chokeholds, but I wondered whether that would allow the each each state to decide whether or not, uh, sort of like in line with marijuana laws, whether you could have uh, your local authorities um, have those practices and whether it would only apply to like federal law enforcement officers. Well, the law that that was proposed relating to chokeholds was was tied to funding, so it was a way of basically creating the incentive for states and localities to impose similar bans. But the straightforward answer to your question is, as to the constitutionality of chokeholds, Congress can't legislate that. Congress could create a cause of action for damages caused by chokeholds, and they could then decide what to do about qualified immunity. And indeed, in the George Floyd and Policing Act that was was passed by the House in 2020, that has a provision that does away with qualified immunity. So Congress can do that, but it can't dictate what the Constitution means. Um, so it's not so much a conflict between federal and state law as a question of the limits of Congress's power versus the role of the court in saying what the Constitution means. Another way to think about this, Christopher, is you know, 1983, the statute that these cases come under is a statute that forbids the deprivation of civil rights, i.e. constitutional rights, under color of law. So it, it allows you to sue if a cop deprives you of your constitutional rights by one means or another, using his authority as a cop. And so those constitutional rights aren't matters of conflict between state and federal law. They're just the rights the Constitution gives you. So you can't, like, if they banned chokeholds, there'd be a ban on chokeholds, but it still wouldn't be a constitutional right not to have a chokehold. And the only other thing I would add is that one of the things that Joanna and Jim and I have been encouraging states to think about is how they can enact legislation that would create a cause of action for violations of the Constitution, and they could just decide no qualified immunity. It would only apply within that state. But it's a way for states and localities not to sit around and wait for the federal government to act, which may take some time. The floor is yours. Thank you. Thanks for taking my question. Given the systematic abuses of the police departments in the United States, could an open database of national police officers' records help us find an agreeable level of qualified immunity? Well, I think that kind of transparency can be really helpful. In, in New York State, there was a state law that had basically prevented the disclosure of disciplinary records for officers that has now been repealed. And the hope is that that will create some transparency and help people understand if there are officers who are, have particularly problematic uses of force. I'm not sure that it would help intervene in qualified immunity. It might help in particular cases brought against particular officers. But I don't think it would help us figure out, you know, when the law is clearly established or when a reasonable officer would have realized that their conduct was unlawful. But it would certainly assist in creating accountability and, and hopefully deterrence. So I'm, I'm interested in your sense of what the realistic prospects are now for reform of qualified immunity. There's been a lot of churn about it. Uh, Justice Thomas has criticized it in a number of opinions. Certainly since the George Floyd protests, there has been a lot of, you know, talk about the need to reform or abolish it. I noticed that John Cornyn, I think it was Senator Cornyn, kind of made a stand on it uh, in a Senate hearing not too long ago, I believe with, with Vanita Gupta's nomination. Do you see the likely reform of this as coming from the Supreme Court or from Congress? And how do you how do you assess this? You know, it's a fairly well established doctrine at this point. What's the mechanism, in your view, by which it is most likely to be changed? So I'm quite pessimistic that either the Supreme Court or Congress will change it. From the Supreme Court's perspective, notwithstanding Justice Thomas's concurrence in Ziegler versus Abbasi, since that case, he's gone out of his way on some cases to indicate that in some qualified immunity cases, he still seemed to support the doctrine. 
So I also just think given the composition of the court, even if Justice Thomas were moved to reconsider it, I, I still think there would be five justices who would keep the law as is. But I could be wrong. I've certainly been wrong about the court before. As for Congress, it seems quite unlikely that that's going to happen unless the filibuster is killed. And I don't know that this is the thing that will lead to uh, momentum to end the filibuster. That's part of the reason why some of us have been encouraging states and localities to think about what, what steps they can take. Because even if a smattering of jurisdictions do some things at their state level to try and intervene in qualified immunity, it can still have effects outside of their jurisdiction if it gives courts more ability to say what the law is, to announce new constitutional rights. So there's lots of virtues to seeing what the states can do. The, the downside is that it's not a national solution. So, you know, but I think the last few years, particularly in the area of marijuana policy, as well as some police reform, frankly, the states have been pretty interesting. I'm curious which states have been the most interested in this and what's, what is the state now with the most forward-leaning policy or uh, being contemplated in this area? Well, so Colorado has passed legislation already. New Mexico, the legislation is, I think, going to the governor's desk. In New York, there's legislation pending in the New York State Senate. There's uh, some consideration of this in some localities. Uh, Connecticut passed a law recently relating just solely with respect to police officers. And there are about six jurisdictions that already have these kinds of laws in place, although some of them have qualified immunity at the state level. So we're in a moment, I think, of transition, and it's and it's yet yet to be seen what other states might take up these issues. California gave some consideration to this in 2020. California already has a state civil rights law, you know, that has some meaningful enforcement mechanisms for which there is no qualified immunity. So there's already some infrastructure in California. There was some attempts were made to strengthen it. So those are the places that have been thinking about it, that have done something already, and and we'll see if if more emerge. So just to be clear for, for the audience members who were confused about this, this is effectively passing a version of the same cause of action that exists at the federal level, i.e. 1983, but at the state level. So you, if you sue in federal court, you'll get uh, a 1983 defense uh, or a qualified immunity defense. But if you sue in state court under state law, that defense is not available on the same set of facts. Yeah, I'll just complicate it a little bit because I'll say you you could bring an action in federal court. You bring an action in federal court for the same conduct. One claim is under Section 1983. The same claim, the same facts under state law. And you, there's jurisdiction in federal court to hear those cases. So it could be in federal court. It could be in state court. The point is there would be no qualified immunity for the claim brought under state law. And do we have any history of, uh, this is beyond the scope of your current study, obviously, but do is there any history of, are these statutes so new that they basically haven't been used yet? Or do we have history at this point of, of any, in any of these states, of these statutes actually being used? For the most recent ones, the ones that explicitly abolish qualified immunity, for the state cause of action, those are too new. There have been some state laws that allow that that are analogous to Section 1983 that have been used in the past, but in most of those cases, courts have found something like qualified immunity. Exactly. Exactly. I see. Yeah. So, so there's no way to tell at this point, based on real case law with no qualified immunity, what the effect is. Right. right. We don't know yet. That's right. And which are the states, I, I, you say Colorado, Connecticut, New Mexico, are the ones that are sort of furthest along in this regard? Yeah, I would say that. I think if the legislation gets out of the Senate in New York and, and gets to the governor's desk or gets out of the Senate and also is voted in the Assembly, then New York will be pretty far along. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
but at the federal level, you have no optimism at all about about dealing with the federal doctrine. I would say extremely little optimism. There's always a shot, but uh, but I'm not. Yeah. And so what you know, given that, what is the point of the studies that you're doing? I mean, it's if if it's not if it's not to suggest, hey, there's there's kind of a, a visible problem here. I mean, is it is it to encourage states to do what some states are doing? Is it purely an academic exercise? What's the subtext here? Or let me put it differently. What would you hope somebody would be convinced of other than the empirics by reading this work? Oh, I hope that people would look at it and say, this is an example that qualified immunity is a failed doctrine. I really do hope people would see that. So for me, the point of doing the academic work is to generate conversation. And I think if you had told me 10 years ago, we'd be having a conversation about qualified immunity the way we are in this country, I would have said, I don't believe it. Uh, And so how have we gotten there? We've gotten there through lots of incremental steps. But part of the way we've gotten there is by academic engagement with the project of qualified immunity. So although I'm not optimistic, it doesn't mean that I don't think there's a point to trying to get people to think about the doctrine. So it's also true that I think it's generally useful to generate information about this doctrine. Maybe it will cause courts to be reflective about how they approach the doctrine, right? Maybe. So one last subject before we wrap up. We have a new Justice Department team that is coming in, one of whom is a federal judge who's presumably sat on some of the cases that you're you've studied and two of whom are you know sort of noted civil rights lawyers who are have done work on police violence issues and i would say can be expected to be sympathetic to your view on this uh, on the other hand the justice department you know has a lot of gun carrying agents and it has a you know it has some degree of institutional interest in protecting them from liability, particularly because they indemnify them, right? So do you expect the Biden Justice Department to take a substantively different position with respect to qualified immunity than the Justice Department traditionally has? Or, you know, given the moment in time, given the personnel, or is the institutional concern the interest on the part of the United States for broader rather than lesser immunity for its people, simply too strong an interest for any administration to turn away from. So I think we should expect, I think we should expect them to look at this problem differently than prior administrations. If history is any indication, they won't. But I think we should. I think, you know, to the extent that the platform that the Biden-Harris team ran on was one of marking a sharp break with the prior administration was one that was about civil rights enforcement. I think this is an area that should prompt their rethinking of how DOJ has handled the problem in the past. You've pointed out the real the real tension, which is within DOJ is a civil rights division, which has the power to enforce civil rights laws throughout the country. Now it doesn't bring damages actions. So it doesn't bring actions in which qualified immunity is at stake. But it brings actions that are in alliance with the cases in which qualified immunity is at stake. So that's that's one part of DOJ, but it's a very small part of DOJ. Also within DOJ are all of the lawyers who defend federal officials against lawsuits, not Section 1983 lawsuits, but Bivens lawsuits where qualified immunity is at issue. And so that tension almost always historically has been resolved in favor of the defensive litigation. It always has. And one of the things that I've argued in the past is just as we would expect the Biden-Harris administration to have a different approach to affirmative civil rights litigation, we should also expect them to have a different approach to defensive civil rights litigation. That doesn't mean they will, but I think it's fair to expect it of them. And And therefore, I think it's fair for progressives who think that this is an important issue to have it on the list of things that 
they put pressure on the administration to to consider. So whether they will, I don't know. Yeah. So one one other factor in that regard, as you note, the government doesn't defend uh, 1983 actions because those are necessarily state-based actors, but it does defend agents who are uh, sued for things all the time. And I'm curious whether whether there is a middle ground position, like just thinking as a as a like if you were the solicitor general and had to come up with the amicus position that does not break faith with, you know, 30,000 FBI employees or, you know, ATF employees. Right. But also encourages a different conversation about police violence. Is there such a position or is this just another way of of articulating the question I asked you earlier, which is where's the, you know, where is there any middle ground here? So I think there's a middle position in terms of deciding what cases to take on appeal and deciding what cases to take to the Supreme Court. I mean, so I think they have the discretion to say, you know, even if we think there's a fair argument for qualified immunity here, we think the conduct is so egregious that we're not going to take this up on appeal or we're not going to take this to the Supreme Court. So that's not so much staking out a position as to what the doctrine should look like, but it is staking out a position as to what opportunities the Supreme Court or the courts of appeals will have to broaden the doctrine even more than they already have, right? And so to me, it's not, that's a that's a decision that's well within DOJ and the SG's provenance that could have a, you know, a, a real impact perhaps on the adjudication of qualified immunity on the ground. Keep it out of court. Right. We're going to leave it there. Alex Reinert, thanks so much for joining us. Sure. Thanks for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode was Zachary Frank of Goat Rodeo. You need to do your part to promote the Lawfare Podcast. Share us on Facebook, tweet us, upvote us on Reddit, and pin us on Pinterest. Make TikTok videos about us if you use TikTok, which you really shouldn't. The Lawfare Podcast is produced and edited by Jen Pacha Howell. Our merch is available at thelawfarestore.com, and you know you want it. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And leave us a rating and review wherever you found us. Thanks for listening.